Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am completely unprepared. I'm also Camille Foster, and I do things at a place called Freethink, and I'm delighted to be here. We are at full strength this week, with the exception of me like actually doing any sort of preparation for this. Uh, Michael Moynihan is back in the building, our very Hi. good friend from Vice News. Matt Welch, Reason Magazine, also in the building. Oh, and of course, boy. our very good friend, comrade Anthony Fisher, insider, also in the building. Good Gentlemen, evening. how the hell are you? It, it's been a long time. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. yeah. since full strength. Since full strength, yeah. I mean, yeah. we were just playing like shorthanded four for a days bit, away. Right? I think the four last days ago, the last full strength was uh, Moynihan's arrest debacle. I think that's, that's right. true. Right? Yeah, which, I've yeah. since I've since uh, gone before a judge. By the way, oh yeah. really? Yeah, yeah. And you're we'll still up, here. Yeah. Update the kids. What happened? I pleaded guilty. <laughs> so much for your big line in the sand fighting for freedom Man, and justice fuck that <laughs> it was 9.30am what do you want to do by the way the great I love courthouses in New York are great because I, I mean I've never been to one before but literally get to the courthouse and sitting in the bench full and by the way everyone thinks like you remember when I said that, that in the jailhouse if yeah. you're not if you're like higher than like a checkout guy, everyone thinks you're a lawyer, uh, you know, it's like, everyone's like, oh, you're a lawyer. let me ask you this. I'm like, dude, I'm not, it's like, yeah, yeah, but you're like the smartest guy. You're like, you know, you're, you're pretty much a lawyer. Yeah. 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 I'm a lawyer. I've got a button down on. It's fine. <laughs> no neck tattoo. So yeah, but Oxford, you're a lawyer. But so apparently in the courthouse, I was uh, a, a lawyer too. Yeah. Cause everyone was like coming up to me going like, excuse me, where's, and I'm like, dude, I don't know. <laughs> I just hear the first time. And so I was seeing that. And then there was a fight at, uh, at the um, security oh. place. Involving, so was a, involving. I don't know. Bunch okay. of fucking scumbags. <laughs> what do you think? You're at the, you're at the, you're at the jail. Like literally you look around and it's always the same thing. It's the same thing when I was in jail. I was like, these guys are all guilty. <laughs> and I was like, so I don't want to be different. Apparently. Yeah. Apparently so. They I, gave, are all I gave up. Uh, a little bit of my white privilege. And I was like, I pled guilty. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to take, you know, cause they're like, you know what? I don't want that working in my favor. I would have fought that shit. So I, I well, I, I had a lawyer by the way. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, and, um, I that, wouldn't have had a lawyer. I would have fought about Seth myself. Abramson. Come uh, on. Yeah. He, he did. I went to high school. I remember that. Um, I think I'm not sure. No, I had Alan Dershowitz. Uh, he, so sure. Caucus. Yeah. He, <laughs> he, he was like, he started talking to the judge about Israel and they're like, like, what are you talking about, dude? And he's, uh, so, um, so yeah, I had a lawyer and they were like, here's what I can do for you. And they did it. And which is like, it's not criminal. And like, it's kind of, ins- like the guy was saying to me, he's like, it's completely insane that this old ticket is like a criminal matter. It's just a stupid pointless. And he got me up there and we got out of it. And, uh, you know, the funny thing is it, it, the thing that underscores is the inefficiency of any city government, because I think the fine was $77. The court with the court fees was like 81 bucks or something. And the guy who arrested me had to stay with his collar. I mean, his proudest collar was me and he was getting overtime. God knows. So who came out on top in this transaction? They still lost money on, on arresting me. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. 
So, I mean, it's like, no one thinks about this stuff. You know, you should just let me go. Anyway. What are you looking at me like that for? I, I pled guilty. <laughs> I, uh, Look at I, me like, I like I'm fucking Mumia or something. The, uh, <laughs> the Jesus the Christ. pulsating sty on my eyeball. Oh here, my God, what know? happened to you? Uh, I think Holy it's, shit, you look like Marty Feldman. I think it's a... Uh, <laughs> I think it's a... Uh, for the younger kids in the audience, look that one up. <laughs> a preemptive uh, stress sty because I'm... Uh, I'm having an even worse uh, situation than uh, Camille's uh, home building, at least over the next 24 hours. You guys might never see me again wow. because uh, tomorrow's the last day of school for um, oh, my daughter's my, been out. Yeah. my eldest daughter. And so she's marking the occasion by having a uh, slumber party with 10 10-year-old girls at my house. Jesus. Yeah. Jesus. 10 10-year-old. And I, if, I don't know if you guys hang out with a lot of – 10-year-old girls in packs. What? Again, why am I looking at you? (laughs) I mean, I'm not Roman Polanski. I mean, please. Yeah. So you have a 10 year old. Uh, yeah. So it's going to be uh, any any group larger than three becomes a uh, Lord of the Flies situation. Even um, with girls? Uh, especially, oh, yeah. especially oh, with yeah. girls, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. my oldest yeah. is nine, going on ten, and yeah. I haven't had dealt with a pack of ten yet. But you already see the biting comments and the passive aggressive oh, savagery. Yeah, the uh, the yeah. the big. Uh, I can see that. Yeah, <laughs> the big uh, uh, innovation that we came up with, however, is that when we have people in our patio, like I invite you guys, you never show up. Um, I <laughs> working on my we, house. We yeah. real short notice. The ten-year-olds make for really good bartenders. Um, and, oh, really? And then they get super, super corrupt and start like oh. uh, stealing from the till. Keep, keep coming up to me like, we just need to go around the corner and buy lemonade. It's really? just it's mm-hmm. uh, the tragedy of the children. It is. Yeah, a, that's amazing. It is a it's a it's a nightmare. So I, I'm on like lead entertainment. So I have to, it's supposed to be a camping. It's just a nightmare. So I'm uh, um, uh, I'm I can't figure out what's going to be worse: the 10 10 year old girls or the ten Democratic candidates Ooh, who. I see. Segue. At yeah. the same time, mm-hmm. like uh, I think you know the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. John yeah. Delaney. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Little like, booted judge over there making you <laughs> making you Manhattan. <laughs> you should name all the kids. That's a good yeah, idea. Which one is Delaney? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Marianne Williamson. Uh, oh, yeah. there's going to be yeah. a Marianne Williamson. You live in Brooklyn. Who's yeah? Oh, yeah there's yeah. going to be an anti-vaxxer. It's the, it's the one called Purple. Did you guys see the... There's uh, a kid called Purple, by the way. What? Running for president? Maybe. Probably. (laughs) At this point, Mm -hmm. I don't even know. But I have a... I want to post this. Maybe I should put... I think this may be a grave violation of people's trust. But I have a great old birthday invite. You know, those like paperless post things. And it was like all the people that were invited. And you go down the list of names. And I'm like, is this like some Portlandia sketch? Where the kids' (laughs) names are increasingly more ridiculous. And I, I can't post that, can I? It's pretty great, though. Just do it. Uh, post it as fiction on McSweeney's Internet Tenant. Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's right. Still, yeah, I don't think that's, that's still, still going. Exists, yeah. yeah, they'll have it printed in Iceland for $600. The, uh, the best <laughs> one of those, and I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't think, uh, betraying too much uh, confidence. It's a shared joke with our mutual friend, uh, uh, Scott Ross, a listener out there. Uh, one of our mutual friends uh, was dumped by a wife or a girlfriend. I, I forget what, just too, long, too much time has passed. Uh, but uh, she dumped him for a raver uh, named Three. <laughs> <laughs> Three? Yeah. Ross was dumped for not Ross, but a, a mutual friend of ours. Oh, so, okay. Oh, shall we mean what is it with the numbers? Dumped by a raver. Three. Named Three. Isn't there a Seinfeld episode where someone's called Seven? 
Is it? I think yeah, that's an Yeah. Well, that's a character on Stranger Things as well. Oh, three. Or is it eleven? There's a makeup gal at Fox named Seven. Really? Was, yeah, yeah. What the fuck is wrong with people? It's She's not, lovely, I'm sure. It's not bad. I'm sure. It's well, not bad. I mean, it's no brand. Camille with the K M E L E. I don't know. Was there a problem with that? Yeah, I mean, everyone. Every time I talk about you, everyone's like, "You're hanging out with Bill Cosby's wife now that he's in prison." <laughs> well, like, yeah, yeah. Well, of course. <laughs> yeah. You want her to be lonely? Yeah, exactly. you think I should, we should all just quit on her. <laughs> Speaking of uh, which, I, I saw... just prevented myself from making an edit in this in this. Yeah. Podcast, by <laughs> the, way. the two things like I was about to time code this one, but nah, I'm gonna leave it. You know, when we don't have the uh, the half drained bottle of whiskey at the outset. Um, that's a yeah. Good we don't way. have any booze in here. That's this two. Is, that's a two two in a row, by the way. I think. Shit. Well, three. Wait, do we not have booze for the uh, the jailbreak episode? No, I don't, I don't think know. we did because that was an afternoon recording. So it was, I think we were all it was wow. Coffee. Yeah, we I didn't release the special episode. I did. Not yet. Okay. Well, I'll give a little hint on it. I'll just tell you what it is. Okay. The team. Um, Weirdly, we didn't have any booze when Michael Moynihan was interviewing Patrick Radden <laughs> Keefe, which is like... I don't know how that could possibly I, happen. I know. I mean, wow. it's like, yeah, yeah. That's that was, also, that was also a daytime recording. And it was a daytime recording, but yeah. the Irish don't really make distinctions like that. But he's <laughs> And he's also from Dorchester, Mass., from the dot, as we say in Boston. I'm and surprised uh, it's not pronounced like... Yeah. Duster. Uh, yeah. n- n- what? Because of Worcester? Is that what? That's the only one you can think of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just <laughs> want to make sure that you didn't have some grand sort of linguistic no. theory about Boston. No. But we talked about his um, new book, which is a bestseller, by the way, mm-hmm. a bestseller. And my friend who's in town, not his subject. He's like, man, you got to read this book called Say Say Nothing. He's like, it's insane. I'm like, yeah, because it's a New Yorker guy. So it reaches this different audience. And it's about the troubles in Northern Ireland, and particularly one killing. It's a bit of a murder mystery in some ways, um, a bit of a history lesson, a bit of a profile of the country. And it's really terrific. Um, so Patrick Ryden Keefe from The New Yorker came in and we did a we did a real deep dive. So I think that in my preamble to the episode, you'll hear me probably apologize for the 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 depth of the dive at certain points. But I think it's kind of, you listen to it, right? Was it? You need not apologize. Okay, good. It was. I, I, I we had a great uh, we had a great chat, and I hope when it uh, comes up, we'll uh, people will download it. Mm-hmm. See, this way I talk about it now. Maybe the people that ordinarily nice would skip it. You ease them into it. No, but, yeah, but, but, it, but it is worth it. listening to. I've listened to the whole thing. It's, yeah. it's did very, you like it? Yeah, oh, it was good. good. I mean, good. What do you mean? You mean what? I mean, this even, is what even sober about. Irish. Can we just stop? Yeah. Can we just stop? Because now you're talking it down, it sounds like. No, it's, it's amazing. Nice. I mean, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. There, is a bit, there is a bit towards the end where I say something so offensive that you have to listen to the whole thing <laughs> to get it. It is disgusting. As they all wow. yeah. I almost canceled myself. Just go ahead. Um, can we talk? Because you're not prepared. And I'll, uh, Can we talk about something we talked about right before we started? Steve Dunleavy. Sure. Yeah. Awesome. Steve motherfucking Dunleavy died. I, to be honest, thought he died like 20 years yeah. ago. I seriously thought he was dead five, four or five years ago. Yeah. So I if, still, I'm still trying to figure out who that person so is. So Matt, uh, explain Steve Dunleavy for us. He was the long time, uh, uh, was the editor in chief or is he just the no, big columnist? Colin columnist. Allen was the, uh, was the editor in chief, yeah. uh, and Dunleavy was, uh, so if you've ever seen the movie, the paper, <laughs> which is one of the, the great newspaper movies, uh, kind of unheralded, a Ron Howard movie from, uh, early nineties with Michael Keaton as the gutsy tabloid, New York, uh, newspaper guy who's dreaming of, of, uh, punching his ticket with a New York times, but he's conflicted and there's a race riot and a murder mystery or I don't know, something like that. Glenn Close is a bitch. It's great. Uh, and Randy Quaid plays an awful, mm-hmm. awful, like 
gruff, drunken Metro columnist who's always sort of passing out and snoring inappropriately on the couch in the office. He was patterned 100 percent off Steve Dunleavy, except probably not as uh, probably a lot more cleaned up than Dunleavy. Dunleavy, um, from what I understood, lived at Langan's, which was well, he got he ultimately got booted uh, from Langan's, I think, for smoking or something (laughs) or being being a pain in the ass. Langan's was a great uh, is. uh, I thought it closed. It closed like a year ago. Fuck, dude, you haven't. Langan's closed. Two years ago. No. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Shit. Wow. So finish that, finish right? the thought. It's a. It's Langens a, is across the street from Fox when it's in the same building as the uh, news Washington court building. building. Yeah. News court building. Uh, so uh, it is a. Uh, it, it was the Fox Bar um, uh, for the most part. You go right across streets, Irish Bar, uh, and stuff. And Dunleavy lived there. Uh, yeah, because the New York Post is obviously based there too. And I mean, it was the classic tabloid thing where you'd file your copy, walk out the front door, and then and then you know. Uh, pickle your liver for for what three or four hours, and then I mean, I think he lived in Long Island, and go back to go back to the island. But the funny thing is, after he disappeared, there was a screensaver on one of those touchscreen. They have those touchscreen uh, cash registers at uh, at Langens, and the the screensaver was a bouncing Steve Dunleavy head, <laughs> which is probably about what Steve Dunleavy felt like every time he left Langens. But the great thing about uh, Dunleavy was that if you were to decide, he came to America from us. He was Australian. So it came with that wave of like uh, Murdoch tabloid guys and was a correspondent on a current affair, yeah. if you remember. With uh, Bill O'Reilly. With Bill O'Reilly, yeah. Uh, Bill O'Reilly was inside edition. Maury Povich. Maury Povich was, was, was yeah, yeah. And it would cut to Dunleavy with like, you know, a lucky strike in his mouth and like a half a pint. And he's like, can't believe what happened here. Let's talk about it, right? And the thing about Dunleavy is that his beat we're like cops and firemen. Yeah. And the funny thing is Don Levy was one of these guys. He's like, he's an outsider. He's an Aussie guy. But it was the way the tabloid papers used to work is that like a cop could like shoot a baby and Steve Dunley like, <laughs> baby, it takes cop. Cop responds heroically. Can't believe it. Fucking baby gone. Perfect. And like he would do, he would defend anything that cops and firefighters did. That was like his beat, right? He was like the reverse Jimmy Breslin. He was the reverse Jimmy yeah. Breslin. That's a really like good way Jim, of describing it. Jimmy Breslin it. went to a, a riot in Crown Heights and got the shit beat. Yeah, out got the shit beat. And, yeah, and, went, yeah, and yeah. went back and wrote a column defending the rioters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So, but there's Dunleavy a, was the opposite. There's a documentary about this that people yeah, should Pete watch. Hamill and that Pete, it's, about, it's about Pete Hamill and, uh, Jimmy and Jimmy Breslin. It's on HBO now. Oh, cool. Um, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I, I, I enjoy it. I saw it like six months ago. Hamill wrote one of the only uh, of the good uh, woe is journalism uh, books uh, released over the last 30 years. Most of those were this, one of the dreariest uh, uh, genres of publishing, but his was called News is a Verb from uh, the 1990s. It's a slim little kind of uh, slim little volume. Um, and it's a terrific uh, little book. And it harkens uh, very much to uh, the last kind of a uh, gasp of super competitive New York uh, tabloid yeah. newspapers. Which well, he, was it, I think, um, I think it was Pete Hamill that broke the Bernard Getz stuff, didn't he? And if anyone remembers uh, Bernard Getz, the old Bernie Getz, the subway vigilante back when New York was not the city that it is now, who shot um, a number of kids who he said threatened him with a sharpened screwdriver. Mm. And it became a big sort of racial flashpoint. Um, and he took off. And I think it was Hamill that found him in New Hampshire. Mm. And he had been arrested by the police there. And uh, it's an amazing, amazing document. And uh, check if that's right, because he wrote this piece about what what gets said to the cops. And as I recall, he was like, basically what gets it is like, you don't know what it's like to live in New York. 
you live here in like New Hampshire. It's like I did what I had to do because this was, was like living in New York these days and somebody had to do it. And it was something to that effect. And I th- I'm fairly certain it was Hamill who wrote that. And if it wasn't, I'm going to be embarrassed. But uh, it's a great piece of journalism. And Getz, of course, came back to New York and ran for mayor a few times on a vegetarian party platform. Yeah. The guy who shot like three or four kids, paralyzing one, uh, and the subway was uh, also a very strict vegetarian. <laughs> so, Wow. Stands the reason. Yeah, stands the reason. I wonder if uh, City Journal wrote uh, some uh, some uh, pay-ins to uh, Bernard Getz. Oh, I am, <laughs> I am absolutely sure of it. Yeah, it was like broken windows and broken vertebra policing at that point. I'm pretty yeah. sure that story was national, too. Even though it was oh, a yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Emblematic for sure. of the whole crime wave. Like that, that, that was referenced Absolutely. while they were passing crime wave, crime bill legislation. And it was, uh, it was also wrapped up with the uh, Guardian Angels. Mm-hmm. Curtis, oh, Lewa, Curtis Lewa, yeah, who still yeah. has a radio show in New York. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it was, I think it was him. Yeah. Anyway. But, yeah, the movie is called Deadline Artists and it's on HBO and it's really good too. Yeah, check it out. Uh, my, our good friend, uh, Tim Blair, another Aussie journalist who worked for the Murdoch Papers, <clears throat> worked with all those guys and, and uh, I would like to say that I remember the stories that he told about Steve Dunleavy. That would be stretching it because I was drunk. But uh, most of them involved uh, Dunleavy uh, urinating in s- various sinks and uh, other uh, places uh, because the bathroom was just too far away, usually at least uh, 10 to 15 <laughs> feet. Uh, and uh, that's just being uh, kind of part of it. And that and that's over. That's over. Like the uh, it was already kind of over. You know, by the mid '90s, the idea, the sort of like grizzled newsroom uh, of the future. I once uh, snuck in with uh, snuck in this is too strong again, but uh, with Emmanuel, my wife, um, we went to the old L.A. Herald Examiner uh, 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 newsroom, which is great. It's William Randolph Hearst Building down on Broadway in L.A. And they stopped publishing, I believe, in 1989, um, and they haven't updated the newsroom since uh and so there was an architecture tour but we could sneak down and go see the newsroom and it's like preserved in amber of how those places just stank Mm -hmm. it was just like men smoking everywhere and even the herald examiner had more women than most most places but like that kind of romantic uh image of newspapers which people don't even have anymore um but of like the the lovable randy quaid drunk and all like that just doesn't exist i mean it doesn't exist at the post it doesn't exist at the daily news or anywhere else like that don levy is sort of the the final guy and again um i thought he was dead three four years ago and which is probably mean but uh we'll pour 40 i i remember wanting to do a profile of him and you know the not quite lion in winter because I just, yeah, I, I, he had disappeared, I think, to Long Island. Yeah, his, but, he was in poor health the last 10 years of his life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, smoking that many cigarettes <laughs> and drinking that much booze is not going to not gonna treat your body very well, as I can, I'm about to find out. Yeah. <laughs> in the Post, uh, I guess you could call this an obituary. It's definitely pre-written. So he worked at the Post for a long time. In their obituary to him, they relate a story where he was having sex on the sidewalk and got his foot run over by a snowplow. <laughs> that is, yeah. and, that is a and, life well lived. And, and right there. by this time, this is a quote, by this time the entire bar, bar was in uproarious laughter. So he apparently was doing this within <laughs> sight of his colleagues. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, on a Manhattan what, sidewalk. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, so there's a... I can't, I'm, so really, I'm really, before you say this, I'm just really upset that, that we didn't get to cancel him before he died. He's <laughs> yeah. doing that in front of his colleagues. Jeez. So uh, apparently uh, <laughs> somebody that was there said Dunleavy was so loaded it didn't matter to him. And which which part? Getting his foot run over. Yeah. Not, not having your colleagues watch. No, no, he, he wouldn't even budget that. And this is in the year, by the way, this is in the year 2000. This is not all that long ago, right, relatively, to his career. And uh, so Pete Hamill has a good quote. 
when he heard that uh, Dunleavy's foot had been run over, he accordingly, according to the Post, bitterly sniped, I hope it wasn't his writing foot. Because <laughs> <laughs> Pete, Pete Hamill considered himself above yeah, Steve yeah, Hamill, yeah, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. No, I'm Pete sure Breslin did too. Pete Hamill could, uh, could uh, publish in The New Yorker, and he's kind mm-hmm. of done more of that as he's gotten older, but uh, that was never really open for Steve Dunleavy. That was, <laughs> that <laughs> he was not, a current affair. Not going to happen. So oh, by the way, I, th- I think I might have been wrong. It was Jimmy Breslin who wrote uh, quite frequently about about Bernie Getz and on the side of the uh, kids, on mm-hmm. the side of the youths and mm-hmm. not Getz, which was uh, kind of an unpopular position at the time. And Very imagine it especially probably, in New York. probably would be today, too. But yeah. So, Camille. Yeah. Uh, can I wake you up for a second? I'm awake. Oh, I'm here. Okay. So, um, <laughs> what do you want to talk about there, Camille? I, dude, I really have no idea what's going on. Maybe we should talk about the Democratic Are you primary high or something? No. I am, <laughs> he looks a I am dreamy. beleaguered. You look I am like beleaguered. an NBA player who has to endure other folks <laughs> using the word owner. Yeah. And despite my tens of millions of dollars and my huge endorsement deals, yeah. I, I quaver with fear. Yeah. Because he keeps referring to himself as the owner, and I feel like I'm back on the plantation. It is um, picking cotton again and not yeah. going to ride home in my Bugatti. There is, that's there, what happens. There are some people out because there of the, the who the, are the like, "What the fuck project. is this guy talking about?" Yeah, so, so that's actually a thing that happened. That's a thing. C- that Camille's not just uh, improving there. This is <laughs> yeah. actually a thing that's like kind uh, of. Been, yeah, so. I mean, you're going with the story, but that's yeah. a real thing. Everyone should know. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, Camille, I sent you the story today. Yes, I, uh, so I, I just I wanted to fucking brighten your day. Um, so. What what happened? What is this all about? Well, the short version is Adam Silver, commissioner of the NBA, made a an announcement. I guess it's not even an announcement. It was part of an interview that aired on Monday, which is yesterday. We're recording this on Tuesday. Um, and he just talked about this uh, ongoing, actually, controversy surrounding the use of the word owner um, in the NBA. Uh, the NBA, like all sane organizations, uh, has people who own teams as in people own things. And sometimes people who own things are referred to as owners. Um, but in the NBA, uh, because of folks like Draymond green, who is the, uh, the guy for golden state is their defensive, uh, standout is sometimes center, mostly power forward. I'd say these days, he's a very talented athlete, um, but he was on LeBron James program on HBO called the shop. And uh, he suggested that the use of the word owner in the NBA was racist because the NBA is predominantly black. Um, And as a result, since then, anyways, there's been subsequent talk about whether or not the the word should be used. Certain teams have discontinued using it. And according to Silver, the NBA league office has abandoned use of the word internally (laughs) for some time now, preferring preferring instead the word commissioner. Um, and Gover- commissioner, Go- no, no, no. something governor. else. Governor, governor, oh, governor. Right. governor. Sorry, well, governor's governor. also something else yeah, too. He's the commissioner. Governor. Yeah. Governor. Um, so he's that the is Cuomo of the that team. is the controversy. They're not forcing any other people in the league to say anything Doesn't or matter. not say anything. They're simply taking this. The commissioner himself is saying that owner. we are, as a league, not going to use the word owner, which of course means you know shares in a team, right? And nobody ever suggested <laughs> meant human beings. Well, Draymond, as- Draymond Green suggested that. That I suppose. Well, no one, no one with a with a brain that's functioning. I I mean, apparently his isn't because has that ever been a thing? I mean, like you don't own the players, you own the team, dude. So what do they do? What? What do they do in the NHL? I don't know, right? But what do you do? Companies? If you're an owner of a company and you have employees, yeah. Do you, we can't use owner at all anymore? 
Well, I don't what what I don't appreciate is why there isn't grave concern about the lack of diversity in the NBA. Like it seems that that's something that we should be striving for <laughs> yeah. to at least yeah. have a demographically representative racial breakdown on most of the teams in the league. That we should be striving to see more Asian players. Well, we've had more, more Latino had, immigration players. has I think helped. We had a Japanese player drafted. And uh, a bunch of uh, Balkan players, right? Yeah. yeah. You had yeah. Detlef, uh, who was German. Tony like Parker, French. Still yeah. far, far, far San below. Spurs, you can't, by the way, be French, French and be called society. Tony Parker. It's just not allowed. <laughs> but Tony Parker. Tony yeah. Parker. But it would be great. I should do like a Bill, uh, like a like a uh, George Plimpton kind of thing where I try out yes. under Camille's scheme. <laughs> try out <laughs> for like, you know, yeah, exactly. A rescue called Fairness. Yeah. Equity, Equality. Yeah, exactly. Fighting for Justice. I, I, I try out for some team. Yeah. And it'd just be amazing. Also, one hand would just be like be biting people's fingers, you punch yeah. them in the balls. They're like <laughs> balls would be at chin level. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, you got to do how you can, right? Um, but no, I mean, is is there no one who will defend this brave stand taken by Adam Silver? No one in the room. Who I would just this comment that all serious. The NBA has made it a point in the last few years to embrace politics. Yes. Like they've gone into it. And I'm not one of these people that's like, oh, keep your sports out of, keep your politics out of my sports because I don't think that's ever I'm really that been a thing. Either. It's I never agreed. existed. But they actually are consciously saying, yeah, we will follow the lead of our players when it comes to politics and we will be overtly political. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a, an interesting uh, interview with uh, um, Charlemagne, uh, the God, uh, interviewed Andre Iguodala from the, from the Warriors. State Warriors, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I just saw a clip For, of former it. Former finals MVP. Yeah, and uh, uh, another very uh, marvelous and uh, smart uh, player, getting a little bit old, but still can play pretty well. And mm-hmm. and they talked about Mark Jackson, who's the NBA commentator, former point guard for the Knicks forever, uh, despite not having any. I mean, I think I can jump higher than uh, Mark St. John's Jackson graduate, St. John's <laughs> guy, and he coached the Warriors when they first got good. He built um, that team. Uh, he helped mm-hmm. to build that team. Um, and he coached, I don't know how long, one year, a couple of years, uh, and, um, and they fired him and, uh, and Charlemagne, who's emerging as one of the better interviewers out there, just like gets, gets people to say stuff. He's good, man. Mm-hmm. That Elizabeth Warren thing was amazing. Was, was great. And then here yeah. he does the same thing. He's like, Hey, you know what? I, what happened there? What happened with Mark Jackson? I've heard there's some weird stuff like with religion or what, what happened there? And in the course of a couple of minutes, it, it sort of comes out that, uh, Mark Jackson was like on on once a week or something um, in the uh, Warriors building uh, doing some kind of preaching over his computer or this kind of thing. Or and he's very religious. He's I think he's some kind of a, a preacher or pastor. Uh, and um, and so some people f- found that odd more from the outside than the inside. But that uh, either the owner or the GM of the Warriors and I don't know this guy. Uh, I think his name is Rick Welch is that, or some, something close to that. Um, but uh, who's a who's a very interesting um, uh, uh, also happens to be gay. And Jackson was uh, talking about the evils of gay marriage or the, the wrongness of gay marriage. Oh, uh, and uh, I never heard this. I never heard this story. I heard it for the first time today, a couple hours ago, yeah. watching uh, a clip of, of uh, I've certainly heard the other version of this story where Mark Jackson is race is uh, black. And that's obviously why they got rid of him. And now he can't find a job coaching an NBA team. It was more because uh, 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 Charlamagne asked him, do you think you got blackball? He's like, yes. 
And it was more that he expressed <clears throat> opposition to gay marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the, the the guy who works for the front office, not owner, mm-hmm. uh, um, <laughs> uh, didn't appreciate that, which you can understand. But then uh, Andre, Andre Goodall posits this in an interesting way, which is to say, like, OK, I mean, if you're walking around and saying, pointing your finger at someone's face and saying, what you do is evil, you are evil. That's mm-hmm. a bad thing. You shouldn't do that. It's not that. But that was not, from his point of view, what Mark Jackson was doing. Mark Jackson and expressed his opinion that he's not in favor of gay marriage because of religious reasons and his teaching. And the question is, can you hold those views which are considered to be intolerant, even though you yourself express personal tolerance towards people? Mm-hmm. And Iguodala's uh, uh, conclusion was like the way the NBA is going and getting a super political right now. And the Warriors are at the center of that mm-hmm. uh, politicization sure. in, in ways that are interesting. I mean, I, I like to hear Steve Kerr talk about uh, politics and stuff. I like to hear Greg Popovich from the Spurs mm-hmm. also. Um, I mean, I don't agree with it, but I find it interesting well, huh. when, when they when they talk. No, it's just I mean, I like it when I like to mix a little sports and and uh, politics and society just because it's interesting. It keeps things from being uh, boring. And sometimes these guys have a weird perspective that's a little bit different. And Steve Kerr himself, I mean, he's just got his dad was killed in Beirut. You know, I mean, he's got this whole backstory that's crazy mm-hmm. uh, and interesting from American University. But. Um, uh, like the, it leads to that question of, of can you have a view which was mainstream in the country 10 years ago and certainly mainstream in the NBA? And a lot of people in the NBA currently hold that view that mm-hmm. they're against gay marriage. Sure. Uh, um, it's very, uh, religious, <clears throat> um, uh, a population who works there. Uh, and, but you just have to learn how to not say it. And it's, it's kind of interesting to chew on. I don't have a yeah. strong, uh, opinion about it one way or the other. That's Do you think it's that he said it at work? Could that be part of it? Yeah. Right? I mean, I mean, it's not just that he's got opposition to gay marriage. He's, he's holding sermons in his he's office. He's holding sermons in his office, yeah. so it gets a little bit much. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I I would get tired uh, after about five seconds of him uh, at, a, at a practice saying, he, then it goes to the cup. He says the same, like, <laughs> ten things over and over and over again. Um, so that would bore the hell out of me. Yeah. Well, that that was all. I mean, that's that's the reason I mentioned the joke about the whole thing but maybe we should talk about the, the debates that are coming up sure that'd be interesting right yeah. I mean, we've got the first debates in this ridiculously crowded democratic field it'll be a two-nighter on msnbc um the first night it looks like we've got uh dear god we've got 21.1 percent of Warren, the field Beto, klobuchar gabbard insley booker God, Cory, Cory Booker. Is he going to um, start crying? Bill de Blasio, really Tim Ryan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. this. That is He's incredible. Outraged. The only question yeah. he should ever be asked are questions about T Bone. Where what? is T Bone? Do you not know about? Is T-Bone? that the dog that he's saying? No, the, his his imaginary friend. Oh, that's right. Oh, 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 yeah. His yeah. imaginary friend, yeah. T Bone. Yeah. Um. So that's it, the first night. The second night, you get Charlemagne on that interview and be like, "Man, what's up with T Bone?" Well, they already had him on the Breakfast Club, didn't they? Oh, did they? They did. Yeah. They didn't talk about that. Sent him a message. He asked him. I think they pressed him on not being down for the people. But the second night on Thursday, you've got Yang, Buttigieg, Biden, Sanders, Harris. Uh, and Bennett, Sawall, and Gillibrand, and Higginlooper. 
and Williamson. You have no idea. Yes. Hink, of, you have, <laughs> have you, that's what I said. It's Hinkle, amazing. Hinkle and Looper. Yeah, yeah. Shicklegrouper. Higginbotham. Higginbotham. Yeah. John Higginbotham. How many people, guy Fisher, have you interviewed um, in your little insider? Uh, in my little insider? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I've interviewed, pers- personally, I've interviewed two, um, one of whom is not on the debate stage, Seth Moulton. I had a town hall with him last week. He's a uh, masshole, right? Congressman yeah. from Massachusetts, is, Rhodes yeah. Scholar, Iraq uh, War ve- combat veteran with the okay, Marines. Okay, we get it. You like him. Mm, just an impressive resume. Yeah. Um, he wasn't, uh, he didn't answer many questions. His, his, his move was to go to the stump speech, which was built largely around Iraq war stories. So when I would press him on a policy, he would tell a really tragic Iraq war story. And I would try to follow up with a clarification and he would go back into another war story. And there's only so much you can poke that bear yeah. without looking like an asshole. Uh, I've interviewed Yang. You should also and, just tell him that's a cheap trick <laughs> and point it out. I think people Yeah, yourself. I mean, it was, it was, a, it would ever tell you about the I baby agree. I saw in Iraq? It was fucking nuts. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't talk like that, does he? Does he have a mass accent? No, he's very posh. He's, okay. uh, he's from Brookline. Is he from Brookline? Yeah. Oh, fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> so hate which those, which one of these punks. which one of these nights is like the headline? All right, so I'll give you, is, I'll it give, one, I'll, is it the one is it the one that Biden is in? I'll even breathe this shit. So sure, I will. Uh, t- it's absolutely Thursday night because you've got four of the top five polling candidates, including the top two mm-hmm. in, in Biden and Bernie, mm-hmm. and you also have Harris and Buttigieg on that night. Yeah. So. Um, you've got, I mean, and you also have the wild cards of Marianne Williamson and Andrew Yang, who in the 90 seconds that they have to make themselves known, will say something wacky. I'm sure, uh, Swalwell is, is the hashtag resistance candidate. He will be, you know, representing the broken hearts of MSNBC world. Hickenlooper. something. Hickenlooper is a a centrist Democrat who's running on the fact that he was a business guy. Uh, Gillibrand is running on the fact that she's the Senator from New York and is, made it a point, even though she's not even polling at 1% to, to she's, she's going for the woman vote. She's made it kind of clear that, right. um, that's I'm the lane she wants mom. to go. Um, Michael Bennett is the deficit hawk and the rest of them, you know, Kamala Harris is a cop. Buttigieg is Alfred E. <laughs> Newman. Bernie's going to give us 1 trillion in student loan debt forgiveness. And Biden is going to remind you that he's Barack Obama's buddy. Mm. Any anyone have a sense as to how this is going to work out? Because it seems completely ridiculous. No, I mean, didn't 2016 teach you to never ever talk about how this is going to work out? Well, I, I don't think mean, I'm I don't on mean TV a number of times. I no, just no, mean no, how this debate actually comes. You mean off. how it plays? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think the first thing that we're going to see. I mean, what what'll be interesting is that because it's a national stage, and you know, let's see, is it going to be a contest of people trying to out progressive each other? Because mm-hmm. I was at the the um, Democrat, the California Democratic uh, Convention a couple weeks back. I guess it was about a month ago. And that's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. It was, um, it was really crazy. <laughs> it was like, you know, the number, everybody who got up on stage was like, I'm more progressive than the previous person. And I was right up there when Nancy Pelosi was, uh, mow mowed and booed for, for not being, uh, in favor of, uh, going forward with impeachment. And I talked to her daughter mm-hmm. who yelled at me afterwards. Did I she? Think, I think it's in the story that I did. But she, yeah, she was really mad at me. She's like, she was, she was offended by my question and then filibustered because it's not real. I mean, it's just a few people. Well, she's saying that 
Uh, she sounded just like Donald Trump, to be honest. She was like, you know, you, you people in the media, you create this stuff. It's not real. There's mm. no split. There's no divide. And it's like, yeah, I seem to remember your mom taking all these shots at AOC, veiled uh-huh. and sometimes not so veiled. But yeah, no, it's very real. And yeah. everybody I talk to here is telling me that it's very real, but they deny that it exists. Rather, I mean, it's like the Baghdad Bob approach rather than addressing, is this the right thing for the party right now when in 2020 you have to defeat Donald Trump? They just don't, they just ignore it completely. I've been happy to see that uh, Sanders and Warren are going after each other a little bit. Um, especially Sanders after a uh, Warren saying that she's the, uh, the um, uh, choice of like the neoliberals and the big banks and this kind of uh, stuff. Because if, if you look at their <clears throat> combined polling averages um, month to month started off uh, with Sanders around 22, 23% and Sanders around six. Now it's like 16 to 12, but it's always, the combination is always the same. It's always 28%, mm-hmm. right? That's the same. They're going after the same people. And, uh, and Warren is starting to get up. I went back and read uh, uh, as part of a preview that I'm writing tomorrow at reason, uh, Wednesday reason, I should say, um, and looked at the first democratic debate from 2015, uh, which is a pretty interesting exercise because those, a whole lot of people are going to go away. This is going to be the last time we see maybe a half a dozen people, I think. Um, it was the last time, last time, that we saw Jim Webb and Lincoln Chafee. And with those guys gone, um, so went a lot of uh, the consistent critique about U.S. foreign policy, in particular uh, the Iraq War. Uh, Jim Webb's super forceful and kind of crazy. Uh, his uh, he was remembered uh, in that thing for when you're talking about like you know who what enemies have you are you proud to have made and he's like well there was a guy who put put the uh, grenade in my tent but uh, he's not around anymore to be my enemy <laughs> <laughs> fucking killed a man with my bare hands in other words which is pretty great um, but it's interesting to see what is said what can be said in those early uh, debates that then go away. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an early Republican uh, debate in 2008. It was one of my favorites. I don't know if it was the first. It might have been uh, in South Carolina at which Gary Johnson and Ron Paul were both on the debate stage as Republicans. And they spent about 10 minutes talking about legalizing heroin. It was awesome. Like we are we good. are at a Republican debate totally talking. Ron Paul's like, I, I'm not going to do heroin if it's, Ill- if it's legal. Are you? <laughs> are you? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, and Johnson's like, well, you know, I have a cost benefit analysis. <laughs> I'm on where, heroin right now. Where's my shoes. Um, <laughs> awesome. So uh, it'll be interesting to see that. And a, a thing to remember in all of this with the uh, fake uh, Alexandra Pelosi kind of like, oh, we're all uh, kumbayaing right now. It's not. It was actually the other Pelosi. No, whatever. Christine the, Pelosi. The no, uh, the other no. one's better than this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that there are identifiable center lanes and left lanes here. Super economic progressive, the Sanders sure, Warren, sure. Jay Inslee, Bill de Blasio, Wayne Messam. There's an actual person that exists, Swalwell, uh, are here. And there are people who are like super being centrist. John Delaney is, you know, uh, uh, saying you can't pay for everything like this. Uh, uh, Tim uh, Ryan. Uh, Tim Ryan. I mean, Hickenlooper is- was booed uh, when when he uh, gave a a kind of tough uh, look at socialism <laughs> and social democracy at the council. I remember that. So yeah. they're going that lane. Like, like lustily booed. Uh-huh. If you include Biden and Buttigieg uh, and uh, and Beto or even not Beto uh, in that uh, in that sort of centrist lane, that's uh, that's been polling consistently pretty close to 50 percent. So there's going to be people who are going to see a, an opportunity to differentiate themselves by saying, hey, Elizabeth Warren, this shit just does not add up, not even close, because it's otherwise going to be a complete festival of reparations 
tons of student loan triple forgiveness of uh, of uh, this is free of that is free. Elizabeth Warren is now talking about what uh, reparations for uh, gay people gay. and their taxes. I think is that what it was something like that. It was that there's uh, a you know the reparations thing is going a little further than we thought. Huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, and so it's it's going to be this crazy competition and the Green New Deals to throw all this kind of stuff. So I think you're going to see, and I hope you see, before they all are uh, drummed out and uh, turned extinct, uh, people um, question them on this and find them. Uh, the qu- question for me is, will someone like a Buttigieg or, or a Beto O'Rourke, who have at least some kind of pulse in the polls, unlike Hickenlooper and and uh, Moulton and a bunch of other guys like that, will they actually do that or are they too like, you know, Gen X, millennial and uh, and conflict diverse? The Refund Equality Act is Elizabeth Warren's legislation to give reparations to gay couples. Yeah, $57 million in taxpayer money is reparations. That's interesting. Uh, you, Michael, you were, sta- you were talking about, the, you were talking about the, the split within the party, especially among the youths. Um, I've, what I've seen percolating under the, uh, under the surface of this debate is the fact that Jay Inslee in particular wants to talk about climate change. And Tom Perez has specifically forbidden any Democratic candidate from participating in a climate change forum that's not officially sanctioned by the DNC. Tom Perez is DNC. Uh, yes, yeah. he's the head of the DNC. So uh, I think there's going to be more anger from the young Democrats or Democratic Socialists at whoever is the centrist candidate who who isn't making Green New Deal or climate change their big issue. And I will say that uh, um, I will be watching the debate on Thursday uh, with a DSA chapter in uh, Las Vegas. So we'll be filming. We have, oh, that's great. We have four cameras there and uh, it'll be great. We're, it'll be airing the next day. So just a quick turnaround of me watching the debate with a bunch of socials. Very exciting. Um, I'm sure they'll be nice and um, I'm really looking forward to it. So, yeah, the question is, will you be nice? I'm always nice. I'm nice Good. to everybody. That's what, that's what I'm I want. I'm nice to everybody. That's it's actually mostly complete not fucking true. horseshit. Yeah. <laughs> that's not true at all. In person, though, sometimes people can't tell that you have the knife out. And yeah, no. Actually, that the knife is already in the stomach. Yeah, but you know, the they thing is, tell. is that I think that we'll probably agree on the broad thing of like all these people are fools. Mm. You know, I mean, they're obviously kind of Bernie, got some maybe Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren yeah. types. I'm, I'm assuming, but you know, I mean, there's something to be said for that too, not policy wise, but like, you know, I do, despite his views that I vehemently disagree with, um, have more respect for Bernie than anybody else in that stage. Hmm. And that's, you know, I've complained in the past about it's not a virtue to have never changed your mind over 45 years or 50 year period. But the man has a set of uh, ideas and ideals. And that's uh, more than you can say for a lot of those people. I mean, Joe Biden's going to spend his time on stage tap dancing about what he actually believes in what he's actually done in the past and saying, no, 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 I'm, you know, Barack's friend and I'm not a racist and I'm not somebody who's one of those Clinton era, you know, end welfare as we know it, tough on crime types. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it, there'll be a, a series of people trying to, Dis- uh, Kamala Harris is another one of disavow their past and sprint towards uh, the, the the glorious progressive future. Uh, you know, and I, I sound like I'm a member of the shining path when I say that. <laughs> but the thing is, the thing about it is that, like, you know, the one thing I will say about about Bernie is like, he's like, I've been saying this for years. And like, fine, great, yeah. good. Yeah. I mean, one small point. And it is. And look, I find it also quite tedious, though, because, I mean, it is he is the guy that comes on stage and plays his one hit from 1985, and that's all he plays. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want the new material. 
But you just don't want that one one over and over and over because, you know, it's the billionaires, the billionaires, the billionaires. It's like, oh, dear God. Yeah. I can only take so much of that. Yeah, I'm kind of done with that. I mean, of uh, <clears throat> friends that I have who are Democrats and, and into it, you hear a lot of like enough of the old people. It's not reflected in polls, obviously, because the two oldest dudes are the ones who are leading in the, in the race. And Warren's mm-hmm. 70 and running third. Yeah. Um, but like, especially with Bernie, like the, the, the he, shit ain't she, fresh. But she took a, a, a quite an aggressive lead in the move on poll. Now, what that means, I mean, that obviously targets like progressive activists, mm-hmm. but she was up like it was like 51, 30 or something over Bernie. Shape, I mean, she's there's which only, is like indicative of something. It's, there's only know. been two moves in the race so far. And that's uh, Buttigieg from uh, who the hell is he to seven, eight percent. And Elizabeth Warren doubling from six to twelve, where she is right yeah, now. So yeah. that and and everyone else, everyone else, with the exception of Joe Biden and maybe Andrew Yang, um, is losing support. Uh, usually, a lot of it. Um, but uh, but they're the ones who have uh, bounced up. So, uh, you know, hopefully or just for the sake of interest, uh, someone uh, preferably like a Tulsi Gabbard because she's so weird and and, uh, and interesting um, will bounce from the debate stage and go and people say, oh, my God, that's that's an interesting person or John Delaney, mm-hmm. um, uh, who, who, who the hell knows. But uh, but I don't know. It's it's I mean, like some dude uh, jumped at Sleestack, jumped in the race. Like another flea bag. <laughs> I, I can name twenty four candidates, and Sleaze that's not bag? one of them. Sleep bag. No, this happened. This happened in the Today? last seventy two hours. Right, uh, well, former yeah. former Congressman Joe Sleestack. Jesus, Sestack. So I. This will be the one where we look back to in 2020 and we're like, oh, because you remember we couldn't even remember <laughs> President Slipstack's name? <laughs> yeah, he's come a long way, baby. Matt, Slipknot, Slipdag. We don't have to spend too much more time on this because I, I, you know. It's going to be boring, to be honest. I, that's my expectation. It's going to be boring. I, I'm not even certain most people would be interested in watching this. Most people who would typically watch something like this will be interested in watching either night because how do you make sense out of this garbage? The it's first, just so much. The first debate last time around got 15.3 million people watching. That ain't not going to happen. No. It's just neither. Ne- they've got two shots at it, and it will yeah. not happen. Um, one question that I've seen come up multiple times um, is about Tulsi and whether or not there is like an appetite for her amongst the libertarian faithful. And you, Matt Welch, you have your ear to the ground with respect to this sort of thing. You're affiliated with the reason. The Ron Paul people love her. Thaddeus loves her. Um, uh, She's the most, like she's the one who puts the anti-war stuff most central to her message. Mm -hmm. Um, I find at least a little bit odd that she gets almost all of the anti-war love. There's a lot of like pretty seriously anti-war people out there. Beto O'Rourke yesterday put out a. I saw the piece you wrote. Um, yeah, but uh, <laughs> uh, a war tax idea that we're going to fund mm-hmm. the veterans forever by uh, every new war. We're going to have like a trust fund uh, at the outset of the war that's going to pay for the, the veterans of the war. It's a, you know it's a moderately interesting idea, and it's certainly curiously it's only a war that is authorized by Congress. Apparently. Yes, uh, but he's stressed um, as have you know the Justin Amashes of the world and mm-hmm. Rand Paul and other people and, and this kind of a growing chorus of otherwise moribund uh, people on Capitol Hill who've been talking about this in the context of Donald Trump and Iran um, of like hey you really ought to maybe 
I don't know, use congressional authorization as spelled out by the Constitution. Um, so he's been saying that for a long time and agitating pretty well. And like, you know, the forever war suck and let's get out of Iraq and Afghanistan. And Libya was wrong, which he said during the Obama administration uh, and, and other things. So there's a lot of different people who have uh, come out against that. But she is the one that's associated. She, I think, says it um at the top all the time. And she's a former veteran, a veteran herself. She mm-hmm. served, I think, in Iraq, right, as in uh, in uh, uh, like hospital units. And uh, and I think people like her just because she's so strange. I mean, the the uh, it's the same reason why people dislike her, like all the never Trump neocons there. They, you know, they, they would say the only people who want Tulsi Gabbard is Russia. There's been a lot of really kind of. Um, BS, I think, uh, stories written. I want to say it's CNN, and I might be getting that wrong, but I don't think I am. Um, or MSNBC.com um, saying, well, you know, there's a disturbing amount of Russians who are out there kind of supporting her campaign uh, type of thing. Like, they, they definitely, want, they, definitely MSNBC. They want to wish because she went to Syria, which was really weird. Uh-huh. So it was a super weird thing to do that there has not been an adequate. She met with Assad, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And she, you know, I mean, some of the weird things is that. It's you. You can be anti-war um, and not like say that I. You know, maybe Al Qaeda was behind that Syrian gas attack mm-hmm. yeah. or ISIS, and then de- and then delete the tweet um, or refuse. At one point, I, maybe she she went back on this, but you know, refused to say that. Bashar al-Assad is a war criminal, which is undeniable. And if you deny that, look, I mean, the the justification she uses is to say, like, you know, I was in Iraq and we were hoodwinked into this war and I don't want that to happen again. It's like, OK, that's fine. That's a perfectly reasonable position to take. But you can do it while it's not going to launch a strike on Syria while condemning the Assad regime for its, you know, foul behavior. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that the other side is, we like these binary things that, well, you know, the other side is Al Qaeda guys and these ISIS and Al Nusra brigades and all these splinter factions. So this is, must be the good guy, right? No, they're all bad guys. And I don't think it's very difficult to say that, but I think when she came back, you know, she went right around the Trump inauguration to, yeah. to, to hang out with Assad. And it's just a bad look. Don't, don't, you shouldn't do that. You know, the, I think uh, it's a bad look. I think it's a bad look for for the president to be palling around with the Saudis, um, not even because of the Khashoggi murder, but just because of the Saudis. And they've been doing this sort of thing for ages. But at least there's some diplomacy that he's trying to accomplish there. You know, I, I say that <laughs> I say that with an asterisk. I'm like, what he's trying you can't to do. Even say that without I wincing. can't even I can't That's even weird. say that without wincing. <laughs> but like uh, that trip, I'm not sure what the purpose of it was. The uh, if if people haven't listened uh, read it out there who are listening to this, uh, Carrie Howley had a great uh, a profile. I heard that was really good. It, it was, was it was terrific uh, in New York Magazine of Tulsi. Was it Gabbard. critical of her or was it pretty down the middle or? Uh, it, it you know uh, it, it's good reporting. Um, so uh, it it ends up being pretty critical of uh, of U.S. foreign policy consensus and elite discussion thereof. Mm. Almost as at these little asides in there, uh, she's trying to like figure out. Uh, Gabbard seems to be like super elusive as a a subject matter. Like her sister is always piping up on her behalf. She has this background in a really weird like sectarian kind of Hawaii Hindu semi-cult thing um, uh, that – and she's had some pretty uh, uh, strongly uh, sharp pivots in her life uh, Mm -hmm. uh, politically yet while seeming to be kind of uncomfortable in her own skin and and not like a very uh, outward, outgoing public person even though she's been an elected official since the age of like 21. It's a a super interesting piece. Uh, It's – 
both sympathetic and critical and um and uh, the tulsi world came out and like you know that's a racist article because it's really? it's anti-hindu there there was something she did an interview with joe rogan and um i think rogan was pretty effusive about her. I, I listened to just the beginning of it and i can't remember what it was but there was something in the beginning that drove me bananas and you know look look i i think that she's an interesting person to have on the stage and rather than look i mean this is what you have with donald trump um, in every previous Republican debate, you know, prior to the 2015, 16 was, was just the kind of amen choir and of people taking slight variations on the consensus of Republican politics and criticizing other people for not being dogmatic about certain things or failing on certain things. And, you know, like jab on immigration or whatever that m- might be. And Trump came in there and just started kicking up dust and, you know, unfortunately, he became the president, but it made it interesting for a little bit. I thought it was just going to like shake things up and get these guys in the 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 you know back from their heels and on the balls of their feet, trying to like you know defend themselves. And I like the only thing I think it's going to be quite boring. But as it's sort of winnowed down, hopefully these kind of weirdo candidates will actually provoke real debate rather than the typical echo chamber kind of the, debates that we the, have. There seems to be, at least uh, to the extent that you can take anything from uh, national polls at the stage, and you can only take a, so much, a, a little bit. But there isn't that uh, crazy outsider and there isn't dragon energy in this in this field. Right. Mm. Like who's weird? Who's like legitimately like Jesus Christ, that person's weird. The Republicans last time had Donald Trump weird. He's a weird like in, in the context of American politics. My God, totally weird. Ben Carson. Where the hell did that come from? Right. Mm-hmm. There's a there was this obvious huge appetite for anti-establishment non-politicians to come and just fuck shit up. Um, there isn't. I mean, who are the three in the Democratic field? It's Marianne Williamson mm-hmm. polling at zero point. Three two percent maybe it's Tulsi. She's just got a strange kind of collection of of beliefs, and it's Andrew Yang. Yeah, um, uh, and Yang is you know he's he's uh, way above Kristen Gillibrand at this point. He's, he's in the top ten, and he's raising a lot of money. And he's like uh, getting people interested, but you combine all those people and you know, that's like 2%. Yeah. There isn't the there isn't a Mark Cuban. There isn't yeah. like somebody coming in and blowing all this shit up. That's not where the appetite is because I think the appetite is – I mean there was a poll today in Mississippi um, uh, where Joe Biden's getting like 50 percent, largely because of the black population. Uh, I think uh, a black vote is, is kind of – not supporting him? How, how does that help? He's a racist, remember? He works with segregation. Joe Biden's uh, uh, black kidding. vote is, is – is is staggeringly high. I everywhere. believe that. Um, and I think the uh, the calculation is just largely, dude, we got to beat Donald Trump. That's the guy that can help us do that. Or it's just name recognition. And name and recognition. Nothing too. else has happened yet. But like the, I mean, overwhelmingly, uh, and this is something that Harry Anson has uh, pointed out many times, uh, and Nate Silver as well, in an un- to an unusual degree, the preference, uh, the single biggest attribute that Democratic voters are looking for in this election. Uh, is electability. And that sounds like a tautology, of course, but um, they're holding up that up so much higher than in other elections. And it makes sense because you want to get rid of Satan. Satan's in the White House. Mm-hmm. We have to figure out a way. Don't screw this up. You know, <laughs> he's unpopular. You can't screw it up. Let's just uh, get that done. And I think that that's what makes for the ultimately fascinating tension, because that's happening at the same time of the kind of woke apocalypse of of uh, uh, general cultural trends in the whole country, as well as uh, the Democratic party and then that bernie has just been yanking everybody to the left uh economically for five years yeah it is interesting um and, and this may be the last thing we say about this and then we move on to something else but with both bernie 
and Biden, you have two guys who have been in American politics for a very, very long time at the forefront of it in some respect, at least Bernie sort of weirdly at the for- at the forefront of the weird aspect of it. But you have the future sort of rushing to meet Bernie in some respects with respect to his politics now being ascendant, at least from what I can tell. And with Biden, while he is still holding on and while he still has – seems to be the strongest candidate in the field at this early moment – there is a very palpable sense, especially when I see um, a lot of the friendly fire directed towards him when he finds himself ensnared in these typical scandals, um, and I mean typical for Biden, uh, that that his moment sometimes seems to have passed him by, or at least he seems to be a creature of another era. Um, and I, I think that's know. a selling proposition. I mean, the the idea is. Yes, he can win, but to, also to, to boomer to boomer voters, essentially um, to to any voter um, who wants to beat Donald Trump, who wants to beat Donald Trump, but also kind of maybe doesn't want to go that fast, mm-hmm. right? Uh, maybe let's not go to reparations for every single outgroup in the in the country right now, right away. Like they're worried mm-hmm. that that might um, turn some people off, yeah, like who didn't vote for them last time, for example. Um, so you know, with Joe Biden, that he's going to be probably the last. Uh, to get to the party um, uh, where a lot of the uh, kind of energy and directions of, of the party is going. And that's kind of it. It's the rusty weather vein, right? Like he's, he's going to creak really slow um, and good because, you know, I don't want the person who's going to go the fastest to there is going to do crazy shit that's going to repel and get a lot of people uh, uh, mad. However, I think that leaves him super vulnerable because all he has to do, um, you know, Thursday night is come off like a completely doddering out of touch grandpa who's lost some of his critical uh, faculties. And as soon as he smells like he might not be winnable or electable, um, then then his support could evaporate in in a hurry, I think. Yeah. Um, well, we've got a couple of options here. There's obviously some action on the border um, that I think is interesting. And this Ocasio-Cortez concentration camps thing refuses to die. She very much like Donald Trump when she says something that kind of gets her in a bit of trouble. She doubles down and she doubles down hard. Um, so that that is ongoing. Um, but there's also stuff with Iran um, that is continuing to be yeah. at least a little bit warm, um, if not hot yet. Um, the sanctions have made the Iranians particularly upset. Um, and they say that they're backed away from the table and are no longer interested in diplomacy. Um, and uh, a lot of folks are concerned about what's happening. We also see Congress flexing its muscles again, not for the first time during this administration, talking about the importance of Congress being at the forefront of making decisions about where we go to war. At least that's what most of the Democratic members of the House are saying. It's unclear how the Senate will respond to this. Uh, any preferences on where we turn the conversation? Um, I don't know if we talked about this last week because I wasn't here. But um, <laughs> you, if you're going to say Iran briefly, no, I would oh. say um, the AOC thing. Yeah, I just want to say that my favorite tweet of the day, which was a completely serious tweet, and for some reason didn't. I guess actually, oh, it got ratioed pretty hard now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Splinter, you know the the yes. embers and the, the used to be Gawker and yeah, Gawker. Infusion. 
Um, this is a um, this is a great tweet. This is the this is the Holocaust Museum's dreadful intervention in the concentration camp debate. <laughs> <laughs> Motherfuckers, you got to think about phrasing that. The Holocaust Museum's <laughs> dreadful intervention in the concentration camp debate. Yeah, where do these people at the Holocaust Museum get no. off involving themselves in the concentration camp debate? Definitely, definitely. The point, that by right. the way, the point of that whole thing. Is not to get into like, is it, is it like it, is it not? It doesn't matter. The annoying thing about it is the instant expertise of everybody, particularly of AOC, which she wasn't even called out on. And she's like, you know, you know, you read some history. She said to, I think, uh, Lynn Cheney, it was maybe, who said, uh, use the word extermination. And she's like, oh, yeah, using the word of the enemies, read some. He's like, what are you yeah, talking what about? That, that is the common parlance of talking about the, about the Holocaust. I think she's using the word of the oppressor. The oppressor, the oppressor. Yeah, oh, my God. Using that language. But, you know, that is, that, is that any more scrutable? Can we do, does that mean anything? It, it means you're it, an NBA uh, owner. The, the, <laughs> the, the phrase, the language of the oppressor is very much in the woke parlance. Of yeah. Things. Yeah. And I, I tweeted out a link to Saul Friedlander's book um, called uh, it was like from extermination to blah, blah, blah. And it's, that was the subtitle of the book. I mean, extermination that, a, from a trilogy, isn't it? Yeah. He has yeah, two books he wrote. They're, oh, they're, yeah, they're both. That, that would make it not a trilogy. No, no, there's two. Yeah. They're, they're, they're two the incredibly sequel. good books. Mm-hmm. And the, this, I think the, this person is getting like 85 million retweets and like people clapping and everyone. <laughs> and it's like, what are you talking about? That's not, I mean, anybody who has even the most basic knowledge of this knows that this is not, an off limits word and is a word that everybody who writes about the Holocaust uses because extermination, I mean, it's the Germans use Vernichtung, which is extermination, extermination of Jews. And so this is not, a, I mean, the language of the oppressor, it's the language of, of, of Holocaust scholars. It's a pretty basic thing. And then, of course, everybody chimes in and says, Oh, let me tell you about the difference. I'm like, Norm MacDonald, all of a sudden. <laughs> I gotta tell you about the difference there are the death camps and the concentration camps, right? And it's like, wait, all these people, all of a sudden are Googling and trying to figure out, well, well she was just at concentration. But it's not, what you're talking about is death camps, of course, because no one died in those other camps. But that's that's different, you know? And it's, first of all, there is a, a, a distinction, right? And none of the extermination camps were on German soil, but there was math, mass amounts of deaths at Dachau, et cetera. But there are these other transit camps like Theresienstadt where people died en masse from typhus and from starvation and from being worked to death before they were sent off to extermination camps. But the, the basic point is like, wait, wait, why are you guys arguing with this? You know what she's talking about. She's not talking about the fucking Boer War. She's trying to evoke one historical event and to pretend that you don't understand that is 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 arguing in bad faith and it's 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 ridiculous but the, but worse than anything was all of these people who decided they were scholars of the second world war and particularly of the holocaust and like no no no, no that's not what she meant because the death camps like guys come on stop and i i saw people that i really respect um tweeting really stupid things and for some reason she really brings out the worst in people in some ways on twitter in particular hmm. is that people that they become I mean, people that I otherwise think are smart and would know that if Donald Trump or, or you know, if John Bolton, and we can segue to Iran on this, if John Bolton used the language of 
the Second World War or the Holocaust to say what was happening. And, you know, look, this is what happened before Iraq. I mean, right. it's, you always mention Hitler. Yeah. This happened in, in 1990 with George H.W. Bush. Mm-hmm. And there's always these references. And, and they're sometimes more direct. But if John Bolton was saying this, you know, vis-a-vis Iran, nobody would be saying, well, you know, the difference here is. And for some reason, AOC, because she has become this incredible folk hero to people, it, she's allowed that free pass because we know what she's talking about. But, you know, when it's talk, like to go to Iran, though, is the Iran thing is is, is amazing because it's like it, it, all of these things have been upending my views on foreign policy for, for a number of years. And one of them is like the, the efficacy and the kind of morality of sanctions. I mean, the, the Iranians are responding the way they're responding. And I'm not this is not anyway, in defense of that hideous regime, but the sanctions are biting and they're biting very, very hard. And now the Iranians are saying, nope, no more negotiations. We're not going to do that. And this is the point at which this is what happened in Venezuela. It's what happened in Iraq is you tend to try to rally more people by saying all of your miseries are a result of these incredibly punitive sanctions, um, which now have been expanded and they're expanded in an incredibly silly way because the Supreme leader is now being sanctioned, which is kind of meaningless. I mean, the joke was he has like one house you can sanction, but most of the stuff that this guy's doing is not an external bank accounts. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's a symbolic thing, but it's just pressure, pressure, pressure. You know, the Iran deal falls apart. There's no deal to replace it. And, you know, these sanctions exist and they're acting out because of them. I, there's, I don't think there's any doubt that those attacks in the Straits of Hormuz were Iranian attacks. Um, I don't know if that drone was in international waters or over Iran. Both are totally plausible. But, you know, this is a place that the, the, John, the John Boltons of the world are um, doing the United States no favors. And I don't understand, like, the, the, the Iranian regime is a fetid, nasty, disgusting regime. But it has been around since 1979. And it's really dug its heels in, right? And now we're really ratcheting up the pressure on them and have been for some time. And particularly when the Iranians were actually engaged in a hostile war against the United States in Iraq. Whether you, not or you agree that Iraq was a, was a sound idea, and I don't think anyone does at this point, is that, that, that the, you know, revolutionary guards and Iranian military forces training, arming, uh, people blowing up American soldiers. So we have been in a hot war with Iran for a while. So I understand the desire to kick them in the shins and try to push them over. But, you know, after that, you know, the green revolution that didn't go anywhere, these often don't go anywhere. I mean, you have like what's happening in Venezuela. It, it, regimes are harder and they're really difficult to get rid of. And just putting sanctions on a short of a shooting war I don't think anything's going away in Iran for a very, very long time. They've built up institutions for, for, you know, God, how many years now? I mean, since 1979. I'm very bad at math, but I suspect it's probably about 40 years, right? <laughs> I just don't uh, see any uh, strong evidence that anybody, let alone uh, Donald Trump, had a big plan B when it came to the Iran nuclear deal. There's tons of things you can criticize about the Iran nuclear deal. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, uh, any negotiation in which it's really, really obvious that one side just is desperate to get a deal done, which I think the Obama administration was in that case, is not going to be expertly negotiated. There's going to be a lot of stuff that you can say about it. And the way they sold it was uh, was were presented, it was not necessarily um, 
the way it actually was underneath the hood and that kind of thing. Still, um, if you want to upend the Iran nuclear deal, which Trump called every single day on the campaign trail, the worst deal ever, the site of NAFTA. Um, and by the way, it, it enor- I, this pissed me off during the campaign, and um, it's an enormous failure of debate moderators and interviewers, because he said this all the time, and it was absolutely clear that he had no idea what he was talking no. about. And if any debate moderator was worth their salt as a fucking debate moderator, mm-hmm. they would have said, give me the most offensive bit of this deal, yeah. and I'd like to have everybody talk about it yeah, and yeah. see what we would replace it with. Yeah. But he said, worst deal in American history. Yeah. That's a pretty strong claim. I think I think uh, the only specific cr- criticism that I remember is, uh, you know, the, uh, the pallets full of cash yeah. um, story. That's about it. Uh, but like, what, so what is plan B? If you get if you walk out of the Iran nuclear deal, what do you suppose Iran is going to do? Is it going to honor its commitments to the nuclear deal that you've just walked out of? <laughs> That's been U.S. foreign policy. Like, my God, Iran backed out of the nuclear deal just like we did a year and a half ago or two years ago. Uh, what the fuck do you expect to happen here? Um, and so uh, you have this on one side. And this is part of what frustrates me about the conversation. I mean, Trump last week um, kind of uh, famously said, hey, I talked to generals and they said that we're going to kill 150 people. And I decided not to do it for an unmanned drone. That doesn't doesn't make sense. I thought it was disproportionate. um, I was happy to see him do that. I think that's that's a healthy uh, thing for a president to do, to point out that killing 150 people for shooting an unmanned drone out of the sky might not really be the best uh, trade there. And by the way, the, the response to that and the response to like, hey, a broken clock. Let's give a guy some credit once in a while, because that would have been a very, very dangerous and bad decision, was to shift the narrative to like, oh, my God, he's listening to Tucker Carlson. Well, it's like, well, this is the thing that you want to listen to Tucker Carlson on, right? Let's listen more. Uh, But the problem is that his policy, um, regardless of uh, his uh, kind of, I think, demonstrated instinct to not want to go to a new shooting war in the Middle East, how does this policy avoid it? We've got new sanctions on Iran. We still, he said in an interview, the same interview uh, that he uh, gave with, I think, Chuck Todd over the weekend on Meet the Press. He said something like, well, you know, uh, uh, if we get into a shooting war, we'll just have to we'll, we'll obliterate, obliterate them. them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's very it, diplomatic. It's their choice. They can't. They, we just can't have them having a weapon, a nuclear weapon. And I don't want them to have a nuclear weapon. But I also don't want our sense of policing the world for weapons of mass destruction um, to override everything in such a way that we then lead to a bunch of sanctions and then we enforce the sanctions, then we want the inspections. I just, it sounds, I don't know, familiar to me, the uh, that that concept. And I don't see enough people who either criticize Donald Trump or work for him or whatever, um, just engage with that. Like there's something about Putting us in that uh, enforcer role, which leads to, I mean, everyone's looking for a new red line and kind of hoping that we or someone crosses it so that we can do something. So we can get rid of a regime. Tom fucking Cotton, you know, every day wakes up in the morning with a new stupid idea about how, you know, it'll just take two strikes to uh, to get rid of the uh, the mullahs in Iran, which is just insane. It's, it's so completely stupid. insane. Mm-hmm. And by the way, there is some evidence, and I know there's a lot of people who dispute this too, is that 
look, first we have to say the scale is very different in Iran. The reformers, the Rouhanis and everything. I mean, reformers in Iran is very, very different. I don't like using that word because it makes it sound like they're kind of liberal types and they're not in the hardliners. But on this issue, they're growing closer, of course, mm-hmm. because the, the, the reformer hardliner, again, wrong kind of nomenclature, but the, the argument was there's no sense in actually negotiating a nuclear deal with these people because they're not trustworthy and blah, blah, blah. And they are proclaiming themselves vindicated by this, of course. But I think one of the, the most interesting forgotten bits about this whole thing is what happened to fucking Rick Perry? Where did Rick Perry go? I mean, Rick Perry is the guy that if he was in the Obama, like, like Ernest Moniz was the was was in Rick Perry's position, of course, and was the one that negotiated the Iran nuclear deal. And Ernest Moniz is a nuclear physicist that that was from MIT and was in direct contact with the Iranian, uh, Iranians all the time. And I interviewed him about this. We never used the interview, weirdly, but he told me at some point that Unlike other people that had cabinet level positions, uh, nobody from the Obama administration got a single phone call. They were all talking about this. There was like no transition guy. And he said Rick Perry called him a bunch and was like, tell me what's up. Tell me what. And, and I was like, wow, Rick Perry, of all people. And I think it was like Sam Stein at The Daily Beast um, and somebody else had, a, had a, a piece about him being the surprisingly stable guy that has avoided um, controversy and actually been doing like a reasonable job according to people in the Department of Energy. And that was like, the Department of Energy was like the key thing in the, the, the Iran nuclear deal. And we hear nothing about that stuff. No, today. not a bit. It's so different mm-hmm. these days. <laughs> but, but to your point of like, what is there to replace it? I'm not sure that I want Rick Perry to formulate that, you know? Uh, I don't. I don't, don't know. We don't have a lot of cho- we, choices. We don't have a lot of choices. Ben, ben isn't that uh, that deep. Maybe yeah. Ben Carson could do it. The other thing that bothers me is <laughs> that an idea. I mean, Mike Pompeo's down <laughs> sleepy. in sleepy old sleepy Carson. <laughs> Mike Pompeo's down in Riyadh trying to assemble a global coalition. Yeah, I mean, the last one was a global coalition. The one that we blew up that was a global global <laughs> coalition. We don't have one anymore. And like, can we just like maybe? Not go to Riyadh one year. Did you see, Let's just, did like, you see Lindsey Graham? Of- did you hear Lindsey Graham on the floor? He was like, I, well, I give him credit for this. I mean, this, you know, this is the sale of weapons to, I guess, UAE mm-hmm. and, 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 Saudi. and Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And uh, House will pass this um, too, and it will be vetoed uh, by the president. But th- Lindsey Graham, of all people, was like, in, and it was the way he formulated it. Where he was like, you know what? I have just been kind of reflexively pro Saudi, and uh, I can't do that anymore. And he said that. I was like, what? Wait, the seriously? Really? Yeah, yeah. And I was pretty surprised by that. Um, it's, I mean, it's still, it's still Lindsey Graham. So, <laughs> you know, but you take these small victories where you can get them, right? Yeah, I, I, we're just we're part of some kind of. Uh, there are theorists in the Trump administration who have some kind of great game idea about. We're going to get on the Saudi Arabia side of a regional civil war. And I just don't see how that's a shortcut to I don't know, peaceful transactions and and uh, and avoiding conflagrations. And again, we're in year two and a half what, of the, you know, of mm-hmm. the administration and we haven't had a war and we haven't had a recession. I just uh, I, it, it, uh, I don't feel good about this. Yeah, um, we. We did. Um, we sort of opened up the the border conversation and then migrated over to the Iran stuff. I, I did want to take a step back, though, quickly to the border stuff, because, I mean, some of the, the, the things 
that Ocasio-Cortez and others are speaking to there are obviously quite severe. I mean, people dying in American custody um, or the custody of the border officials is a pretty big deal. Um, we've certainly seen deaths in American custody before under the previous administration as well. Very fairly similar numbers, if I'm not mistaken, um, considering they both had to deal with surges um, in uh, in terms of the the number of contacts that we were having on the border. Although the problem has been more severe under the Trump administration, um, but I do find and think it's worth discussing, I do find it very interesting the degree to which resistance to doing anything with the president on immigration issues mm. and the resistance to really formulating any sort of a coherent policy with respect to how to respond to this from people who are critical of the Trump administration, appropriately critical, um, is is frustrating. Um, and I saw today that Wayfair, which is one of a few Amazon competitors, so you sell stuff on the internet and happen to not be Amazon and have a broad selection that, that includes you. I guess there's them, there's O.co, if it's still a thing, or is it just overstock.com again? I'm not sure. But someone, uh, the reporting was that they, Wayfair employees discovered that there had been a large order for beds for detention centers for children who were in custody and that there was going to be some sort of walkout staged. And it just seems representative of the broad problem. I with can't believe issues. those people at Wayfair like are so opposed to immigration. <laughs> like you have <laughs> kids sleeping kids on floors. They're trying Jeez. to order beds for these children and they want to have some sort of a walkout. And I get it. I get wanting to be on the other side of this issue and wanting to signal to the administration Hell no. We don't appreciate the way you're treating these people on the border. This is wrong. It's immoral. Stop breaking up families. But there really is a legitimate issue on the border right now because of incoherent U.S. policy Uh, and a lack of funding and bureaucratic ineptitude and material problems that need to be addressed. And no one is willing to talk about it, which is the other reason why this concentration camp rhetoric is so flagrantly irresponsible and so very Donald Trump. There's a real issue. There's something that we ought to be concerned about and talking about in a serious way. And instead of trying to address that in a potent way and delivering some sort of speech that might get YouTubed because you have some bright, brilliant ideas in it, Ocasio-Cortez digs into her bag of tricks and comes out with concentration camps and continues to push that. And that drama is pretty much the only thing anyone is able to talk about. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Number of well, I think it's right. As in a number of contexts. I think not, it's right. Everyone. Yeah, I think it's right in the sense that it's it's a distraction and allows this debate to kind of be like to, misshapen. To fester fester is, is the word way. I would use. It's like I saw today and I, I, I feel even weird about saying it because you don't want to. These are people that were captured by the Taliban, the Iranian regime, particularly the guy um, I really like, actually, the guy that was a journalist at the Washington Post who was uh, Jason. Jason. Yeah, yeah. So a guy that was captured by Somali pirates. Michael Scott Morris. Yeah, him. Yeah. And a guy that was captured by the Taliban saying I was treated better by the Taliban. I was treated better by the Somali pirates. I was treated better by the Iranian regime. Or at least I got a toothbrush. Yeah, but that that's the problem. I hate this kind of inflation. It's like this. I, I see that stuff going on the border and following it quite closely. And it is morally reprehensible in every way. And I think that all the pressure that's directed at the administration, and I think that there's some fissures and cracks in the administration who actually see that not only this is 
uh, you know, bad news, especially bad politics. Sure. And hopefully that that latter one will will enforce the former one. But to say just to even bring that stuff up and just say like, oh, it's like ta- I mean, when I was in the capture by the Taliban, it's like, guys, come on, let's not do this. Not the same I just thing. it's not the same thing. Yeah. And, and, and it's it's this kind of I, I don't want to say this irresponsible. Because this guy actually was a prisoner of the Taliban. But it's just a weird time that I think that this inflation, you know, it's we go from fascism. We had, you know, conversations about it on the show quite a bit. We had like Tim uh, Snyder and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. these people are talking about the, the the dark night of fascism that is that is looming in America. And this kind of stuff, it's like, no, no, no. It's a terrible I situation. I don't mind people getting emotional about and using – uh, emotional images and reporting. I think there's been a lot of good reporting about this in the front pages of newspapers. Mm-hmm. And uh, totally there. fine. Uh, and I agree with that. And uh, th- that I haven't delved that deeply into it, but just sort of skimming on the top of it because you don't care about the children who are I've suffering. I've got a limited attention span, bro. I understand. Um, Matt believes the children aren't the future. <laughs> <laughs> I think Put there's them at in least cages and some don't give them beds. <laughs> Some <laughs> evidence indicating that, uh, as uh, I think was it Adam Serwer, your favorite journalist, uh, Camille, uh, said that the cruelty still owe him an email. The cruelty is the, the point. I think. I think that there's. I think the behavior, the administration's policies have been um, deliberately cruel on occasion to use cruelty as a deterrence, um, which and, they admit to. Which so they admit to the previous. The pre- Previous administration admitted to something very similar. Uh, yes, not nearly as much and didn't use it nearly as much. That's true. Um, uh, and, uh, and then kind of uh, went back and forth on it. I mean, th- I think the administration is, is very incoherent about it. When you call them out on this, they say, well, Obama did it too. That's like, right. Like, oh, so would you like – Wait, are you like Obama's policies? That's no, right. you're yeah, saying yeah. that Obama did it, did it terribly, and now you're doing it's it's all completely kind of uh, uh, incoherent. And you, and they've cycled through a bunch of people. Uh, John Kelly down on the border. They just uh, the latest one uh, quit. Um, uh, who's uh, yesterday? Uh, yesterday uh, on this, um, it it is terrible. I mean, uh, separating kids from their parents um uh at at any age really is is terrible and 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 to do it deliberately and i think i mean yeah the wayfair thing is is uh, is it's so stupid that you want to slap somebody in the face. Um, but at the same time, there's, I think there's a lot of people who are sending supplies down there who are like looking ways to organize uh, and get help to people down there. Totally true. A, because it's it's an awful thing to contemplate they're, that the government in their name is they're, doing these things. So there's two parts of this is that one is the deliberate part of it, and that's undeniable and it's unconscionable and it should be condemned every way from beginning to end. And I'm glad, as you're right, there's incredible uh, journalism on this. There's great photographs that have been very effective too and affecting. I, to my previous point, I would just say that if you ask me or anybody in this room, would you rather be a prisoner of the Taliban or be on the border? I think we know the answer to that. So I just don't, I think that inflated rhetoric doesn't help anybody. But the the other thing is, (laughs) is just like there is, and I have talked to people a couple of people in particular who are deep haters of Trump's policy, immigration policy, who acknowledge that they're actually, actually, we now actually can classify this as a crisis on the border. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a- any longer just Trumpian stupidity and rhetoric. I think that's kind of, you know, the, the you know, just the sort of consensus view amongst people who actually pay attention to this issue. And so there's a part of this that I suspect is, is 
what happens with governments when they are presented with a crisis and they act stupidly, poorly and inhumanely. And I think that's I mean, I think it would probably I mean, you look at the conditions in prisons in America Mm -hmm. and they're pretty appalling, too. It doesn't make any of this stuff okay. At all. It's not an excuse for it at all. But I think a lot of this stuff is deliberate and a lot of it is a crisis on the border and a government that is very, very bad at doing its job. And the two of those things combined create a very, very toxic and dangerous situation. And they really have to act on it soon because you know what? You didn't invite the people here. Okay, fine. Tough shit. Your job as as the president of the United States and as the president's, you know, handlers, cabinet, mm-hmm. et cetera, is to deal with those issues that you did not wish to fall upon the country. Yeah. Do something about it. Yeah. And they're not doing anything about it. And I think that now I suspect something will be done fairly soon. But there's a and, and again, we can't be judging this stuff and talking about it to the prism of this very narrow prism of the people that are on the fringes on either side of this, um, because there are certain people who are never going to be satisfied. You know, just let them all go and, you know, that's just the humane <laughs> thing to do and just open up the border or whatever. No, no one's going to be satisfied, but the, the current situation cannot hold. What yeah. bothers me um, is that people are in, in the Trump administration and the Stephen Millers of the world. They are perennially surprised that if you say I'm going to absolutely slash the number of refugees that we're going to take in this country, I'm, I'm going to cut uh, Tom Cotton, again, um, always shows up in these uh, conversations. I'm going to cut the amount of immigration year over year. I'm going to cut the number of visas here. Um, they are surprised that when they enact policies like that, hmm, there's suddenly a lot more people trying to come in through whatever little cracks exist. Um, they think that they can defy the laws of supply and demand through really good uh, enforcement. Um, and it's it's the lesson of prohibition that people refuse to learn over and over and over again, you're going to have this. We've seen now two and a half years of a restrictionist cracking down approach, and it has not led to fewer people seeking to come in. It just And and I would say that on the debate stage, when Democrats, uh, the Democratic candidate is taking on the uh, Donald Trump, um, you know, presumably not Bill Weld, uh, we will, we'll have a response from Democrats that talk about this as a failure, not as a look, it is a humanitarian crisis and it is ghastly what these people are doing. But I think that the that Democrats should not get a step into that trap and only attack it from that angle. Because, you know, the majority of people that I talk to in this country when we talk about immigration and I've talked to lots of people about this when doing stories about it and doing this Trump special and they all just say the same thing. It's illegal. They shouldn't be here. Yeah, yeah, no, it's terrible. This was happening, but they shouldn't be there. So Trump is ultimately right. And the, the method that one should do, I mean, the, the sort of political calculation that one should make is that it's a failure. That's it. You know, it, when Donald Trump says at this point, it's a crisis on the border and he keeps on saying this. Mm-hmm. And that is increasingly true. And it's increasingly true despite anything that he's done and probably because of things that he's done. <clears throat> That's a great way that Democrats should attack him on this. And rather than you know, the, the more emotional stuff, not to say that that stuff is no policy. Hard to do with no policy. Precisely. Yeah. 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 Um, the, the, the one, um, headline that I saw a few times, uh, and I'm, I'm looking at the NPR, um, iteration of the headline was U S Southern border, uh, cities brace for surge of African migrants. Um, just from a geographical standpoint, that is kind of an astonishing headline. Where where is that from? This is uh, NPR. 
Really? Yeah. Oh, I thought that was from Breitbart. No. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. And this this is not, I mean, this has been reported on uh, a few times in a couple of different places, but people for legitimate, understandable reasons, like going to South America and trying to make it into the U.S., claiming asylum. Uh, I don't know how effective a strategy so that is. Inefficient, um, but if your hope, but if your hope is, country. I mean, it's all pretty bad. Um, but maybe. But just is there any sort of a hardier endorsement than the American project? Than African people coming through South America, Central America to, to get, get to, the US. to the United States. It's like you know, whatever shitty, you can shitty do. situation. But you know, like Mexico is pretty cool. Yeah, still a so beacon I, I like of Mexico. You can get a decent life there. It's pretty great. Um, same thing in South America. A lot of very prosperous. They, they want to come here. A little that's, easier. I mean, that's this. You know, li- a little, little easier. easier to blend in here though than in Beijing. So that might be the reason. Well, why yeah, not Beijing. <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> Beijing might be a little different, and also maybe experience a yeah. different type of racism there. In other places in Africa, you could go. Of course. So. Um, I don't know. What else we got going on? Should we get the hell out of here? It's been a little while. Like, we, we, If we want to keep this in the show, breaking news, uh, Mueller has agreed to testify. Oh. oh. Yeah. So oh. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's what's blowing up my slack right now. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. All right. So that, that, well, I, that happened. <laughs> I'll say, I, I, I will, I can, can we can, I can end on this if you want some stupid story that I would like to hear. What, whatever you like, um, Michael Moynihan. We're just delighted to have you back safely. Thanks, man. From, the, from your dangerous adventure abroad. Yeah, I, I, pirates. I, I had a particularly dangerous adventure this weekend. That's true. Uh, we'll talk about it some other time. <laughs> um, it was disgusting. Uh, I can't believe I survived it. Yeah. Uh, Every uh, part of my body hurts. Yeah. yeah. No. Adventures in parenting. Oh, my goodness. Stop yeah. um, no, this, this uh, just came across a transom. I tweeted it um, while we were... Well, one of you was talking and I wasn't listening. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, tweeted, I tweeted a congratulations um, to Philip Morris, uh, mm. the tobacco company, on their great victory uh, because San Francisco has become the first U.S. city to ban e-cigarettes. Oh, those no. um, oh, deadly. So, uh, you know, they made it very tough before and the taxes and everything, the jewel pods and the stuff was a lot more, the taxes and a lot more expensive in California. And now... Um, Jewel actually is based in San Francisco. I've been to their headquarters. I've interviewed their two founders. And um, they're, they're literally in the city, they're providing jobs and you know, helping God. people get off smoking. And um, they have made it illegal for online re- retailers to deliver to addresses in the city. That is insane. It is in fucking sane. I don't know if Oakland, does Oakland count? No, I think everyone's no, there, right? No, so totally can, different city. So you different can get, city. Um, so... Basically, what we're in a situation now where this safer alternative to cigarettes, far safer by every scientific study that we have so far, much, much safer. Do we know that they're totally safe? Well, no, you're inhaling particulate matter into your lungs. That's probably not the greatest thing in the world, but it ain't that. Right. Mm-hmm. And the only thing in this stuff is, is what is it? Some glycol and, you know, nicotine. The rest of it. But this is saving people's lives. And I did a piece in this ages ago and I talked to a couple of doctors that said if everybody in the world switched to Juul or, or vaping, we would save millions, yeah. millions of lives and millions and billions and billions of dollars in healthcare costs and the rest of it. And San Francisco cannot ban, they've not banned cigarettes. So you can buy cigarettes in San Francisco, <laughs> which will fucking kill you if you keep smoking. There's no evidence that, that, that the Juul will kill you. None. Zero evidence of this. They say in a Trumpian way, we got to see what's going on. We got to just stop it until we can figure out what's going on. (laughs) What's going on is these things 
are saving people's lives in millions and millions and millions of people. And I, the number I think, which is a, 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 doc, a, a, a professor from BU, I've interviewed a very good guy, um, said more than 2.5 million Americans have um, quit smoking by switching to, to vaping, which is an incredibly, but the thing is, is now there's an explosion in kids vaping. But by the way, the baseline pr- previously was zero, right? Because vaping is a relatively new thing. And they think that because if we get rid of this and other things that kids won't do anything risky. And are they kids, definitely are kids vaping more than they used to smoke when smoking was much more mainstream? I'm not entirely sure about that possibly, but if so, you know, I so felt like what? half of my high school was smoking in the early nineties. Yeah, no. And like they, nobody's, smokes anymore right i mean almost nobody i mean i actually had lunch with a friend of mine today who is french and she smokes like a chimney like crazy <laughs> and took out a jewel and i said oh they sell those in france and yeah they're 11 euros for poor pods now i'm like geez it's really spreading and this is a fantastic thing and, and by the way this is something for your colleague jacob solemn is that uh i think there was uh no marijuana is fine right that's fine uh, cigarettes are fine. Oh, it's just these cigarettes. Sorry. Nothing else. Um, but what you're of course creating here is what, you know, you think people are going to just, this, people are going to stop vaping and start, look, I guess if what they want to happen happens is people start smoking cigarettes again. I mean, I tell you what, I have a jewel in my hand right now. And there have been times when I have been stuck in a situation where I don't have a jewel or a jewel pot or it's dead or whatever. And I bought a pack of cigarettes because I'm like, eh, kind of need my nicotine. And I have tapered off, and I, a friend of mine said to me the other day, who I haven't seen in a while, said, man, you barely huff on that thing. You used to be like constantly, constantly. I was like, yeah, yeah, just I need it less and less and less, and I just don't smoke cigarettes anymore, thank hmm. God. If I was living in San Francisco, and I was in a situation where I wanted to stop and change this, the government of San Francisco, for reasons that are, I cannot quite determine, is not going to allow me to do that. I, uh, it's insane. I used to have a, a theory um, about 10 years ago uh, Santa Monica, I think, was uh, outlawing people from smoking cigarettes inside their own apartments on some cases yeah. because, like, they might come out on their balcony if their window was open. Um, and at the same time, the city was like decriminalizing or stopping all enforcement of marijuana. This is before marijuana uh, was legal. So my theory was that every city with the name San or Santa. In the yeah. uh, in the prefix, San Francisco, Santa Monica, Santa Barbara, whatever, uh, would at some point legalize marijuana and criminalize cigarettes. And I realized that 10 years later, uh, that turned out not to be true. Uh, it's going to be e-cigarettes. It's going to be vaping. It, New York is doing this. It violates the San and Santa rule. But it's it's blue cities. It's it is stupid a, ass blue cities. It, it is an enormous boon to big tobacco. Because they, I mean, they, look, the, the thing is, is that the regulatory regime, which the Trump administration was trying to, I mean, basically destroy e-cigarette industry too. They, they don't have the lobbying power that these enormous companies like Altria and Philip Morris do. Mm-hmm. So they can fight this stuff. And these little guys can't, right? Jules isn't a little guy anymore, but they were when, I think when I first met those guys they were they were fairly small compared to what they are today and a lot of this like like juice this you know e-cigarette juice stuff is very 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 small operations i met i i filmed with a guy in oakland who uh, quit smoking uh by vaping and started making his own like vape juice and had a pretty successful operation it's a very small operation and but it was a good living for him and he was waiting for his industry to disappear for reasons that he didn't quite understand nobody could quite explain but there is the single most dangerous consumer product in the market is, is are cigarettes. 
And, you know, I smoked for a long time. I don't have a problem with people smoking, um, making that choice if, if they'd like to. But it is a very, very dangerous product, right? Super dangerous. But it's, it's, it, it can exist. They have to explain, the people in San Francisco and the city council, have to explain why they're taking a safer alternative off the market. For what purpose? Because, oh, kids. And this, I think I've said this on this other show before, but you know what the argument is? They have flavors. So what, you know what Juul did? You, it, you know, there used to be mango and creme mm-hmm. brulee and all that shit. You can't buy those anymore. The only two things you can buy in the store is mint and tobacco flavor. Hmm. If you want to get the other ones, you have to order them online. There's because a lot of third parties making a lot of third parties well. now, but they're, yeah. they're jumping in and, and taking advantage of that because yeah. it's not a regulatory requirement. It was pressure on Juul because they're the big guys. Right. So now like this one I have in my thing, that's a compatible one. These people are making kind of compatible bootleg ones, which of course probably have a lower hurdle than these people, these two guys who went to Stanford and built a global business, which, you know, safety is, you know, kind of key and, and, and consistency in their product is key. Sure. These other guys aren't. And that's what I'm buying now if I want any variation, because I don't want to, I can order it online, but you can't actually buy it in shops. So is that why you're buying it for the variation? Not like, because it's a little cheap. You well, want the bubblegum flavor? No, tool. I don't. I mean, this, this is like menthol, but it's okay. just, it's just cheaper. It's menthol. Uh, yeah, it's mint. Yeah. I'm not surprised by yeah, that. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm not surprised by that yeah. at all. No, it's, it's very on brand for you. Yeah. Very on brand. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's Michael mint. Hands. mint. Yeah. No. Yeah. Like, I, like, Smooth. I can't. Though. I'm not going to say anything. Also drinks Colt 45. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember Uptown cigarettes? Was, <laughs> no. Look it up. It was no, like, marketed specifically to one demographic. I bet. Um, but yeah, final thing I'm saying is, is, is it, it's crazy that this sort of things exist, but you cannot buy these things in, in, in shops anymore. They voluntarily did it. And now that's, it's piecemeal to, to attack them in a, in a local way. And the, unfortunately the Trump administration is not too far. Um, the FDA um, is not too far from San Francisco on this, there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that it is more harmful at all. And it's uh, the emphasis, uh, the evidence is all to the contrary, that it's healthier. There's one uh, thing that you, you didn't touch on as part of the opposition is that there is actually some synergy between big tobacco and the vaping industry. And Altria actually recently invested heavily in Juul. Yes, uh, they right? did. Yes, so yes. And, and, and Juul's first product, by the way, I think they sold to... Is it Japanese American tobacco, Japanese tobacco? They, their first version of Juul, they sold to a Japanese tobacco company. And um, great. That's fine. Mm-hmm. I, I, good. It's a healthier product than, than what they're selling right now. And these guys know that they're being left behind. So they are making these investments. But if this kind of legislative model takes hold, they should stick, stick with their business. Because the best way of delivering nicotine in your system rather than going and buying it underground, you know, by the way, crack still easy to buy in, in San Francisco, really easy to buy. Um, and it, it is in, in the, high supply. The, the mayor, the new mayor who I met uh-huh. a couple of weeks ago, by the way, has to sign this in the law. And uh, one hopes that, that common sense will, will, will overwhelm her for five minutes, but I suspect it won't happen. But m- my favorite thing and the final thought on this is that it. The, the argument is um, kids like flavors and um, they do flavored things. So they have to, that's why kids are doing because they like flavors because as I think I've said in the show before, God knows adults hate flavors. <laughs> I just can't stand a good flavor. I want the nastiest, most kind of neutral, gruel, Eastern Germany, style cuisine flavor. But you know, cause it's kids. They love flavors. Yeah. It's you know? true. Yeah. But uh, you know, there you go. Fucking assholes. <laughs> Anybody got anything else before we leave? I'm good. It's a good, uh, good close. Yeah, yeah. I'm going back to my uh, to my home tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> yeah, 
Wait, wait, which home? The other home. Oh, the other home. Oh. Work in progress. Oh, right. You sleep in there tonight? No, no, but I got to prepare for tomorrow. I got some things going on. You got a blow up mattress in there yet? No. Any hobos living in there yet? No, I hope not. If yeah. they are, I haven't caught them on my Arlo security camera. Oh, that's right. You got all that shit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm building, I built my own security system, so I don't have to actually buy one from ADT or anybody this time, but it's actually quite great. Like I know when people come in and out, like I can unlock my door because of my great August lock. It unlocks as I approach the door, which is great. It's just like, wow, how it sends me a push notification. It's like, hey, Camille, how's it going? No, it's Bluetooth. So it's like it knows when I'm in proximity and the, picks up the Wi-Fi and it knows like geolocation. It's really great. In fact, when I leave the area, that's when my Arlo cameras kick on and they send me a notification when any, anytime anybody is. You're like an urban militia member. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Actually, and you've seen the compounds. So I have. You know. I have. Yeah. I have. I've and seen it's like it. real. It's real. It is real. Can he defend it against the uh, ATF? One way in, one way out. I'm, I mean, you gonna get it. I mean, <laughs> you gonna get it. <laughs> like, what, are you gonna like uh, do a G. Gordon Liddy quote now? Headshots. When he said that, <laughs> no. they he said, "Remember that? It was a big controversy." No, my, my quote is, "You gonna get it? You gonna get it? <laughs> you gonna yeah, get it? You gonna get it? We gotta put that on a t-shirt. You yeah, gonna yeah. get it? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, when you shoot somebody, uh, I'll t- I'll send the lawyer who defended me on the ticket to come over yeah, to help you out. Sounds good. Yeah. yeah, that's not the guy I want working for me. Why? When because because he was. Like, what R. Kelly's he was like, attorney, you know what? For guilty. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Not guilty. You want R. Kelly's attorney? <laughs> Absolutely. Did he get him off? Well, in the past. <laughs> <laughs> Camille, time's up. R. Kelly. <laughs> Sorry to say. All right. Well, speaking of time, we didn't even talk about the Trump stuff. We'll do that next time. All Maybe. Right. All right. Let's go. Bye. 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 We, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.